Amen. I hope you've enjoyed our journey through 1 John as we have uh, just really gotten into the Word in this series. And I've, I've loved it. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you're just jumping in, don't worry. We're wrapping up a series, but I will catch you up. And uh, you actually picked a great week to be here because if you didn't pick this week, you'd have missed this whole amazing series. And so great job. Uh, you got here and uh, we'll walk through it. If you've been journeying with us, um, I'll give us a little bit of a snapshot to remind you and catch you up uh, on where we have been. We have been talking about First uh, John, this letter written by John, who is the aged apostle. He is um, at this time of his life. Uh, somewhere, uh, some, uh, some scholars will say he may be in his 80s or even his 90s at the time of this writing. Uh, he was the last of the disciples to still be here on the earth. And it became apparent to him that the next generation of believers, the ones who Jesus talked about when he said, blessed are they who have not seen but believe in John chapter 17, when he started praying for us, and thinking about us, he thought, I better write some of this down so that the future generations will have a hold of the truth that I experienced when I walked with Jesus. We've talked a lot about context because context matters. It's not just what I say, but who I say it to and why. And context matters when we approach the word of God. Context, context matters when we have normal conversations. For instance, I might say something like, I really hope Russell Wilson kills him today. Right now you have context that it's Sunday. There's some jerseys on. There's a game and you're like, yeah, I agree. I really hope Russell Wilson kills him today. But if I were to say, hey, I really hope Russell Wilson kills him today. And all he was doing today was visiting old folks in an old folks home. But the context would dramatically change the content of what I said. Some of you are like shocked by that, but it's true. Right. So if, you know, this is on the Internet for the next. 50 years and someone listens to this and no one knows who Russell Wilson is. And I say, I hope Russell Wilson kills him today. And you don't have an idea of who the context is. You'll think, wow, that pastor was a maniac. The same thing with John. If we don't know who John's talking to and why he says what he says, when we approach the scripture, if we don't know who the author is talking to and why they've said what they've said in context, it's very easy for us to jump to conclusions that the author never intended or for us to make the story uh, told to, in our eyes to us where we're at today, which isn't necessarily what the author intended. And so we've talked a lot about who John's talking to and why he's saying what he's saying. And some of these things that he said that are, that are uh, difficult for us to process, today we're going to hit a couple of them that are, are, for me, so challenging but so deep at the same time. And we'll have a little bit of fun with that. Uh, but as we've been walking through that, just so everybody's on the same page, we know that John is talking to the next generation of believers who didn't live with Jesus. And we also know that in that group, there are some who have begun to kind of change the character and the nature of Jesus to fit their circumstance instead of changing their circumstance because of a relationship with Jesus. And we know specifically that that has kind of come out in a way that has allowed this group of uh, I'm going to air quotes for those that are uh, listening on the podcast, uh, believers that have allowed that group to make decisions that say my character and my behavior don't matter because Jesus saved my soul. I can do whatever I want with my flesh. And they've begun to manipulate the, the teachings of Jesus. And in some ways, they've altered the identity of Jesus to fit 
the behavior and the patterns of this world. And we still see the same thing happening every day, today. And so when John writes to this group of, uh, of people, he has strong things to say. And there's language that comes out that we don't always want to talk about when we get together and talk about Jesus and talk about the word. John says some things. He's a little bit older. Right? We already established that. Sometimes you hit a point where you're just like, I'm just going to say what I need to say. And it's going to come out of me. And John's kind of at that point, And I love that tone. And, and time and time again, he refers to us as, hey, dear children. Like, hey, little guys, get it. Like, I love you, and I'm kind, but if you say this and you do this, you're a liar. And he uses some strong language like that. So, so time and time again, this comes out, and, uh, and it's fun to explore that in the context of who John's talking to, and then take that and apply that to our lives today. And so that's kind of what we're doing. Um, as we're getting into this final chapter that, that we just read the whole chapter, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, for time's sake, I haven't gone through every single verse of every single chapter. And some of you hopefully have been reading along and, and following and studying. I've left some meat on the bones so we can visit First John again uh, in the future, and there's still room to go uh, into, into that, and, uh, which is great. But today we're going to walk through this entire chapter because there's just so much here that John wants to get out before he's done. And, and many believe that this letter, uh, which isn't really a letter specifically to anyone, it's more like a homily or a sermon, that it may have actually accompanied the gospel of John. And so it might have been like a cover letter that people would have read to have an introduction to who John is and to John's uh, understanding of our relationship with Jesus. And then he tells the story of walking with Jesus. One of the things that he's specific about is just this idea that he actually got to walk with jesus he's an eyewitness he knew jesus he knew his voice he knew his scent he knew his silhouette he knew what happened on the cross he watched blood flow from his hands he watched them pierce him in the side and what blood and water flowed jesus looked down from the cross to his mother and said this is now your son and pointed to john and then pointed to john and said well didn't point he referred to john and said and said this is now your mother he he was responsible to take care of mary after the cross that's who john is so if we talk about experts on jesus Probably John had the most intimate relationship. Maybe James was his brother, had to grow up with him. I get that. But probably John had, had some of the most intimate knowledge of what it was like to be with Jesus. I can't even mention James without just being blown away. And, and I know I mentioned this before, but can you imagine growing up and your brother is God? Can you imagine, like, you know, anyone ever getting stuck being compared to a sibling and you're just like, oh, can you imagine, why can't you be more like Jesus? That must have been just the most brutal childhood. And here, I'm just going to say this. There is nothing in scripture that convinces me more about the divine nature of Jesus than the fact that James believed that his brother, because I got family and there is nothing they could do to convince me that they were God. They could, I mean, my brother could like teleport here right now and float through the room and I'd be like walking around looking for wires and I, I just, there's nothing he could do that could convince me that he is God. But James literally believed unto the point of death that his brother, that's amazing. That's just free, but that's amazing. That's an amazing testimony. And then John 
who knew Mary, who, who stayed with Mary, who took care of her, who knew Jesus and referred to himself in kind of third person as the beloved disciple tells the story of what it was like to be with Jesus. And he knows something about having been with Jesus. He knows who he was before he spent time with Jesus, and he knows who he has become since then. And he knows that those two people are not the same person, who he was before he knew Jesus and who he was afterward. He knows there's a transformation that's happened. And he knows that anybody who says, I have a relationship with Jesus and has not become new is not consistent with what he experienced having been literally in the flesh with Jesus. He also knows you can't know who Jesus is or, or, or who he was and is and then feel okay about changing that narrative to fit your preference. He knows you can't do that. He says if you have a relationship with Jesus that's authentic, man, here's some things that are going to be different in your life. It's not going to be the same. And if you tell me you have that and I look at your life and it's all the same, then I don't know what else to tell you except you are deceived self-deceived or trying to deceive me but it is not true and so here's john telling us all of this information and it's heavy and it's rich and it's true and it's amazing and it can transform our lives when we understand it in context and so my prayer for all of us as we wrap up this series is that your life would be changed by the power of john's testimony about who he became and who we are in in relationship to jesus that's amazing. So I want to just kind of dive into this fifth chapter. And, and uh, as I do, before I do that, I would love to just, I'm going to take you on a whirlwind tour of some key things that John's wanted to point out to us that have come up over and over and over again. What was challenging as we walked through these series is John wrote this as kind of a preacher, right? And preachers do some things when they want people to get information. And uh, my wife points this out to me all the time. She's like, you repeat yourself. I'm like, Yes. Because if I repeat it, you might catch it. And if you catch it, it might get in you. And if it gets in you, it has the power to change you, not because it's my words, but because it's the word of God. And so John repeats some themes over and over again. And you've got to remember, he didn't write chapters and he didn't write verses. He wrote a letter that was a sermon, a homily, and he did a good job. And because he did a good job, some things come up over and over again. And so let me just take you on a little bit of a whirlwind tour of some of the things that we now know. Because John is highly concerned that what, about what we know, about what we know because of uh, the book of 1 John. So in 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 9, we know this. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that amazing? Just let that, I mean, if I just put that on the board and you read it and we went home, you could be changed. Like literally that's how powerful that truth is. Uh, I'm, I'm, and again, I'm just going to kind of take us on a highlight reel. I would normally never just do this, but we're wrapping up a series. And so I want to give you highlights, okay? And so highlight reel. First uh, John 2, 3. Something else we know. We know that we've come to know him if we can keep his commands. John says you can know that you know Jesus. And there's some things that happen in your life. That, that demonstrate that you know Jesus. And you can know that you know him. I like that. You know that you can know that you know. You can know that you know him if you keep his commands. Good. Uh, what's the next one? Uh, chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. It says, but if anyone obeys his word, this thing, right? Love for God 
is truly made complete in them. This is how we know, again, things we know, that we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And we walk through some of what that looked like. What did Jesus do? Verse 23, um, where am I? I'm in chapter 4. I'm getting losing myself here. Uh, I'm in chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. And this is his command to believe. No, that was right. That was right. Uh, And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So earlier he said, anyone who's in Christ will obey his command. Well, he had to say what his command was. And so we need to know what that is. So this, this is what we know. This is the command of Jesus, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. That's amazing. We know that we obey his commands when we love one another, when we believe in the Son, and we know by the Spirit that he gave us. 1 John 4.12. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and God is made complete in us. John says, hey, when you love one another, when you demonstrate the kind of love that God said you should demonstrate... That God will actually live in you. That's amazing. Do you know you're maybe the only Jesus someone will ever see? Has it ever occurred to you that in some of the relationships you have with people, you might be the only living example of Jesus they ever come into contact with? Now, they may see some post on Facebook. They may listen to, you know, uh, uh, some radio station. making some, but, but you might be in the flesh. The only Jesus they ever experience. Has that ever occurred to you? That coworker, you know, one you're thinking of right now? That you might be the only Jesus they ever experience? Has that ever gone through your hamburger, through your meat grinder and come out as your hamburger? You know, right? Process that. Threw it in there. Wow. Some of you just needed to hear that and I can go home. Where am I at here? Um, what's that? Four, 12? 4, 15, and 16. We know this. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, then God lives in him and he in God. Four seventeen. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence. This is amazing. We can have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. Then he goes on to say there's no fear in love and perfect love drives out fear. And we talked about that last week. Do you know you can have confidence in this world that someday when you're face-to-face with Jesus, that's going to be awesome? You don't have to be terrified about that moment. You don't have to be afraid of that moment. In fact, Paul said uh, that he basically looked forward to that moment. You can look forward. I look forward to it. I hope you look forward to that moment when we get to be face-to-face with Jesus. John's like, you can have confidence in that moment. That's exciting. So we get all the way to chapter 5, and, and uh, there's this dilemma that he's been solving of folks that have just kind of changed the nature of Jesus and tried to make that fit their paradigm. And I was thinking about uh, this, this idea that, you know, I was thinking about identity theft. And I don't know if you've ever experienced identity theft. I've experienced identity theft. It's like the worst. It is so frustrating to go to a place that you didn't go, to talk about money that you didn't spend, and try to convince them that you are who you say you are 
and that you didn't go to that place or spend that money. And they're looking at you thinking, what kind of scam are you working in? And you feel all, I don't know if you've ever been a victim of it. It's the worst. When I went through it, it took a year to resolve it. And I went to business after business, and I had to have legal documents, and I had to have uh, paperwork from the police department and formal letters from the bank, and I had to go to managers, and I had to sit there and feel like I had, uh, I had somehow done something shady because of a $24 payless uh, purchase, but I didn't make it. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Somebody else hijacked my identity and spent resources in my name and tried to be me, but it wasn't me. Can you imagine the frustration Jesus must experience at the identity theft that's out there in his name? Can you imagine the frustration as as folks do things and say it's in the name of Jesus, but it doesn't align with the character of Jesus and it's not who he is? And here's John saying, this is who he is. This is what we know. This is this is how he lived. And this and this is who you are. And sometimes I think we worry about our identity and, and the world tries to hijack our identity and say we're not who we who he says we are. And the enemy of our soul steps in and says, you're not this. You can't do this. And, you know, he comes to steal and kill and destroy. And he's attacking your identity. And he's saying you're not good enough. You don't have what you think you should have. You can't do what you think you should be able to do. And it's all not true. And here's John saying, this is your identity. And this is Jesus's identity. And this is the truth. And it can change you. And it's amazing. And it's amazing. So as we get into the word, I'm going to walk us through a little bit, and we're just going to have some fun uh, talking about some of the things that we know. If you're a note taker, this would be a good time to take notes. You can take them on your phone and get your phone out. It won't hurt my feelings. Don't worry about it. You can text, you know, uh, check the scores, whatever you need to do while you have it out. It won't hurt my feelings. Go ahead and do it. But if you're a note taker, you may want to take a little bit of notes uh, this particular time because there's some good things that we'll pull out of here. If you like to write on your Bible, you should write on your Bible. It's okay. Um, It's not sacrilegious to write in your Bible if you have your Bible. Don't write in the Bible under the seat unless you're going to take it home, but you can help. You're welcome to take it home. (laughs) But here's some things that we know. So here's the first thing that John wants us to know that we know. We know what a follower of Christ is. We know what a follower of Christ is. The first five verses say, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. Again, obedience and love together demonstrate who we are and what a follower is. Verse 3, this is the love for God. Obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I was thinking about how concerned John is that we take care of God's kids. And I was thinking about taking care of my own kids. Do you know there's laws that make sure I take care of my kids? Like there's laws out there that that give some parameters to make sure I take care of my kids. I was thinking about this. I have never been in a situation where I was taking care of my kids because I was afraid that legally I was somehow responsible if I didn't do it. That's never what's driven me. Now, I have been afraid of legally I'm responsible for what I might do. No, that's another conversation. Um, <laughs> I'm teasing there, right? But it, it, it was never law that motivated me to take care of my kids. It was love. Law was just there to establish parameters if love wasn't present. But, but John's saying, hey, love is present, so take care of his kids. You're part of the family. 
Have compassion and care. You're one of the kids. Love one another. That's why time and time again he says, you can't say you love God and hate your brother. It's inconsistent. Those two things can't coexist in the family. So when you say that, but you do this, it tells me you're not in the family. That's First John 3. He says, you don't even know who your father really is, but your father's the devil. He's old, he just says it. If you do that, your father's the devil. It's not God. So maybe you may want to go ahead and, you know, switch teams. Just saying. I've read the end, and that team doesn't win. So <laughs> that's what he says. But, but, but it's amazing, and we're part of God's family. It's not a pain to be in the family. It's a joy to be in the family. It's a joy to be in the family. It's amazing to be in the family. It's a blessing to be in the family. Is it work to be in the family? Is it work to be in your family? Yes. It's, it's responsibility to be in the family, and there's expectations to be in the family. But it's a joy to be in the family. John's like, we know who the followers are. They're in the family. They love God. They're children of God. They love his kids. Do you want to know something? You and I aren't going to be friends if you're not nice to my kids. Right? And I know that I'm somehow in the image of God and fractured and whatever. But on some level, my perfect father in heaven, I'm sure, isn't totally okay with you dogging on his kids. Or me dogging on his kids. So let's just agree that though not every kid in the family is perfect, because I'm in it, we still got to love his kids. You want to break relationship with me real kid, real soon, real easy. Just do something wrong to my kids that's it right it's the end sorry that's how that goes so here's john saying we got to love the family i think that's pretty clear right verse six the next thing we hit is we know who jesus is this is the next thing we know we know who jesus is so we know who a follower of christ is we know what a believer or a christian is but we also know who jesus is and john goes on verse six he says This is the one, talking about Jesus, who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, he did not come by water only, but by water and by blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. Now remember, in their culture, you need the testimony of three witnesses validated something. So he's saying that you can essentially, God can self-validate, because there's three persons. Okay, you're with me. All right, but... For there's three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God which he's given about his son. Anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. And anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he's not believed the testimony God has given about his son. He's saying you can't say that Jesus is anybody else but the son of God and not make God out to be a liar because God demonstrated here on earth that Jesus was in fact his son. He's saying you can't have it both ways. There's an amazing stream of thought that's like, I really like Jesus. He's cool. I'm not sure about the God thing. But I like his teachings. I think he was like a pacifist. He might be something like Gandhi. I'm not really sure. But I I like guys that are nice to everybody. And you seem to be nice to everybody. And so I like this Jesus. But I don't believe the whole ball of wax. You can't have it both ways, John's saying. You either believe who God is, that he sent his son in the flesh, that Jesus, who said that's who he is, lived on earth, lived perfectly, lived and, and became the atoning sacrifice for our sins, suffered unto death for you and for me. And then on the third day, that God raised him from the dead, and that now he reigns in heaven, and he sits at the right hand on the throne of God, and he intercedes on our behalf. You either believe that that's who he is, or you make God out to be a liar. You can't have it both ways. 
And that's what John's telling us. He's like, hey, guys, this doesn't work. Verse 11, and this is his testimony that God's given us eternal life, and that life is in his son. He who has the son, this is amazing, has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. Isn't that amazing? That is good news. That's not bad news. That's good news. He wants us to know. You know, water and blood gets confusing, and the illustration that he uses sometimes gets a little confusing. There's all kinds of schools of thought on what exactly he's referencing right there. Some say he's referencing um, that when the spear pierces Jesus' side, it says that water and blood came out. Some, some will say that's water baptism and then the cross, the two things Jesus demonstrated here on earth, that he was, he, he was uh, uh, fully the son of God. That's when the dove descended. All those things happened. What essentially, he's, remember, he's talking to people who are trying to say that Jesus maybe wasn't really in the flesh. It was just a spirit that came. And he's saying, no, Jesus came. These things happened. It was in the flesh. It was real. I saw it. I smelt it. It happened. And it's true. That's what he's saying. I love this. This is specifically to the identity hijackers. This is specifically to the people who are trying to change the nature of Jesus, who are specifically trying to, to, to uh, alter who he is and what he did in the flesh while he was here for you and for me. He's saying, uh-uh-uh-uh, you can't have it both ways. Jesus is who he says he was, or he was crazy and calling God a liar. It's one of the two. No one gets to hijack his identity. Verse 14. I'm moving really fast, so I want to get us through everything. So hopefully you're staying in with us. But, but, uh, but he says, he says we, we can know how to pray or what to pray. We can know what to pray. Isn't that awesome? He just changes gears here in the middle of it. And he's like, oh, I just want to also let you know that not only is, is a relationship with God possible, but that relationship is interactive. It's interactive. You can know what to pray. That's exciting. Verse 14, it says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. If you're underliner, according to his will would be a good thing to underline there. We like to skip that part. If we ask anything, he'll hear us. Do it. We like to, we like to just ad-lib a little bit right there, right? Verse 15. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask. Remember, we already established that we're asking according to his will. We know that we have what we asked of him. Verse 16. It's going to go off the rails here, so stay with me. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death, but there is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Wait, what? Should we just skip it? <laughs> It'd be way easier if he didn't word it that way for all of us to just process. Thanks, John. Let's start with this. We can know God's will and we can pray with confidence. That's the truth. When we're his kids, we're in his family, we're near his heart, we can pray according to his word and we can pray with confidence. We can approach God with confidence. That's amazing. And then he's going to deal with some sin stuff. And this sin stuff, I'm going to be honest with you. I spent a lot of time listening to a lot of voices try to convince me of what this text says. So I'm going to present to you a little bit of a case, and then I'm going to tell you just what we know. Okay? So here's the case. Some will say that when John says there's a sin that leads to death, 
He's talking about physical, actual death. And we see that happen in the scriptures. We see Ananias and Sapphira who lie and deceive and withhold their offering from God and, and want the credit for bringing a full offering when they actually didn't bring a full offering. And we see that get exposed. And you know what happens in Acts chapter 5? It leads to death. Right? And God is righteous and he's just. And there's some sin that happens that is a def- absolute o- a- a opposition to him. And the consequences of that can be death. We see it with Herod when uh, the crowds are praising his name because he's such an eloquent speaker. And he doesn't turn and give that glory back to God. And he just falls over and, like, becomes worm's meat. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, right. Like, it's just amazing. The Bible's cool. So we see that there is sin that from time to time in Scripture, because God is righteous and God is just, it does lead, in fact, to actual death. Some will say, well, there's sin that leads to, like, a spiritual death. And we know that Jesus referenced this, and, and we could see that maybe John was, is referencing that there is a type of sin that if you make this kind of distinction in your heart, your heart has hardened essentially to a place where there's just no walking back from that on your side. Not that God ever quit pursuing you. You've just moved to a place where you won't, you're so hard. This thing is a rock now, and there's no coming back from there. Maybe he's referring to the kind of sin that solid solidifies a heart in opposition to God. Maybe he's talking about that. We know that there is a type of sin that, just be careful here, that we think we can just play with sin because we have time to come back from that because we think, well, we know about God's mercy and forgiveness, so we're just going to play with this and get all the way as far to the edge as we can, trusting in God's grace and mercy to just rein us back in. And we know there's a heart condition that happens there. Right? We know there's a heart condition that happens there. I think it, um, it's Hebrews that, that talks about um, Esau had experienced that kind of sin, that he just moved so far away from God there was no coming back. Here's what I know. The more I studied this, here's what, what, what just really hit me. What I'm doing as I study this is I'm looking for the boundaries of sin that I can come back from. And that's the wrong question for believers to ask. Maybe John doesn't clarify because he doesn't want us establishing just how far we can run and still be in relationship with Jesus. He doesn't want us going, okay, if I get to the wall, that's the point. So, so here's what we do in our nature, right? We want to know, okay, I bought my get out of hell insurance. So where's the boundaries of that insurance? I want to run all the way over. I'm not going to touch the wall, but I'm going to live my life as close as I can to the, to the edge I don't think John explains it simply because he doesn't want us asking and pursuing that question. How far can we run? That's the wrong question for a believer. The right question for a believer is how can I get closer? How can I move towards Jesus? How can I move away from the sin that so easily entangles? How do I get out of that? Patterns and habits that lead to the edge. I, I, it's like, can you imagine if Jesus, while he was walking on the earth, was like, I better find out what the edges of perfection look like. How far can I go and still be perfect, right? What's the edge of perfection look like? It's insane to think about it in that context, but we think about our lives in that context all the time. What's the most I can get away with? Like, if I'm just, you know, if I don't really lie, but I just omit the truth, is that, is that the edge where it's okay? 
right? Is that where it's okay? You know, I'm going to watch this show, but I'll fast forward the parts I know I shouldn't be looking at. We just want to get to the edge. Got quiet in here for a second, right? I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll be careful. <laughs> I'll just figure out what the edge is. You know, I'll, I'll linger at, at, at lusting for this thing that I want. Just a little bit, but as soon as I feel it like my core, then I'll bounce over to, you know, to the next, whatever it is. And it's like we want to explore what the edge of that sin boundary is. And that's the wrong question for people who love Jesus, people who are in the family, people who have experienced the spirit of God living in them. When it swells up in them and says, don't get anywhere close. Yeah, sometimes we slide closer than we'd like to slide, but we're always on a journey. It's, <laughs> it's, it's why the scriptures say we work out our salvation. Like we fear and tremble and we move closer and we get further in and we go closer to our relationship with Jesus. And our goal in this life is to be like him. Not to figure out what's the most not like him we can be and still make it. That's insane. It's the wrong question to ask. So the answer is, I don't know the, exactly what he's talking about there. I'm being transparent with you. But I know the pursuit of that took me farther from Jesus than closer. I don't care what that sin is. I care that I don't move in the direction of sin, that I move in the direction of Jesus. Someone smarter than me might be able to put that together better than I can, but that's all I got. You guys still with me? All right. What else do we know? We know how believers act. We know how believers act. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. We know that anyone born of God doesn't continue to sin. See, it aligns with what he just said. The one who was born of God keeps him safe. And the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. He says there's behavior that believers do that is shocking to the world. That doesn't make sense to the world. You could have taken that, but you didn't take it. You could have kept that, but you gave it away. You could have protected, but instead you sacrificed. That's crazy to the world's way of viewing things. You could have harbored a grudge and been righteous, but you forgave. That's crazy to the world's view of things. It's contrary to a world that's under control of the evil one. But it changes the world when we do it. I look at this small ragtag group of believers. And I see them changing the culture of the world. Because a peasant from a nowhere town demonstrated that he was fully God and fully man. And they believed. And it changed the way they loved. And it changed the way they forgave. And we're talking about a carpenter's son who lived over 2,000 years ago in a nowhere town. And we're today challenged to continue to change the world by how we love, how we forgive, and how we believe. There's a way that believers act that don't make sense to the world but changes the world. We don't embrace it, we change it. We love through it. The Greek verb in verse 18, it means doesn't practice sin. We don't keep on practicing sin. I'm a, I don't know, it's 
funny how I think about things. I'm like, we got our shirts. We're on Team God, right? We're outed that we need grace, that we've experienced it. We don't get to pretend like we have our stuff together. We are declaring in the same way many of you are, are wearing Hawks jerseys today, right? Because you're supportive on Team uh, what, team 12 Man, whatever it is. But, but <laughs> yeah, I butchered that on purpose for the, just for the podcast. That's right. I'm smiling if you can't see me right now. But we're demonstrating our love on the outside because it tells people that we're on Team Jesus. There's something different. We're unified. We're part of the body. We're part of the family. That's our identity. This is where no one gets to steal our identity. This is where no one gets to change what it means. No one gets to tell me how I love. No one else gets to tell me who's lovable and who I can forgive and who fits in the kingdom of God and what sin I can tolerate and not tolerate and who I can, who I can have mercy on and not have mercy on. No one gets to generate those margins except for Jesus. And I want to align and be like him who loved those that were so far outside of the margin. That's what I get to do. No one else gets to shrink that, narrow that, give me tunnel vision and tell me who's acceptable in the kingdom. No one gets to determine. No one gets to hijack my identity in him. That's what we learn here. We're almost there. You guys ready? We know that God is first. It's the last thing we know for sure. In this passage, we know that God is first. Verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is is true, even his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then I love verse 21 because it's the kind of thing you say, when you're just like, I love you all, and also don't forget this. It's like an itch in my brain, and I have to say it before I go. And John just wrote this, and it's brilliant. He says, dear children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from idols, verse 21. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. And what's the point here? He's saying nothing gets to take the place of God. Nothing gets to move into that first place. Nothing gets to be bigger. Nothing, you know, the idea of idols is all throughout the scripture. I mean, it starts with the Ten Commandments, right? No other gods before me. And we don't like to think about idols today. In fact, we glorify the term idols. We watch shows like American Idol, and we, 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 we think of idol, pop idols, and we think idols are cool. But the context that John's talking about is what idols do in our lives is they become things that have our heart, that we love, that we adore, that we put in the first places of our lives that we, we create space for. And he's like, dear children, keep yourself from idols. He's saying, guard your heart, guard your love, guard what you let into your first place. Now, this is, this is something that, that goes from real easy to real hard real fast, okay? It's real easy for me to say, you know, don't let that band or that team or that thing you love become an idol in your life and we can all kind of agree you know yeah i like it but it's not an idol i got to make sure it's not first and you know that means i got to go to church on a sunday and and devo the game or whatever do you are you know i got you i got you i I get all that right okay that kind of hurts a little bit but i get it right then we could say things like don't let your finances or your resources become an idol and it gets a little harder 
Because it's like, well, you know, yeah, but I got to manage things and I got to be a good steward and I got to be responsible. But there's a tension here between do I love that more than I love God? Is my trust and my obedience aligned? And it gets a little bit more tense and it gets a little bit more difficult. And I feel it a little bit more because you hit me a little bit more in my core and my safety and my security. And then we can say, oh, it gets a little bit harder. And we say, well, don't let your career or what you do with your time become an idol. And then it gets even harder. And it's saying, well, what if this thing takes me further away from what God's called me to do? And do I really? trust God because now it's not just my money it's my identity and what I do and people respect me and it's my power and my authority and and all of those things get shifted and then it gets really scary and we start saying don't let the people you love become an idol don't let the people in your life become don't you know I I, I was talking through this with my wife last night and, and the first thing she said is where am I in that right because she's keeping me honest because she knows I love that girl. I do. Since ninth grade. Oh, yeah, it's disgusting, right? That's the end. Just go home. It's over. But no, since ninth grade, she's been my world. Period. Done. End of discussion. But she doesn't have the first place in my heart. I love my kids a lot. And I want them to grow up thinking their dad loves them more than anything except their mom and Jesus. But that's not easy. It's going to affect how I manage my time. It's going to affect how I parent. It's going to affect how I demonstrate my love. If I leave them a legacy that their dad's whole world is them, and they don't know that their dad would do anything for Jesus, I've failed. I've missed it. I've swung hard, but I've missed I got really, really close, but there was an idol in there. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Don't let someone hijack that position of your heart. Those aren't bad things. We do love those things. We love people. We love friends and family and core family. And deeper than that, we love, yes. I don't love them less because I love God first. It's not like my capacity to love is a pie chart. Right. My capacity to love is not some pie chart that I got to carve out 51 percent for Jesus. And that leaves me like, you know, 19 percent. I'm not a math guy. Where's my math guys at? Like, you know, I, I don't know. Do the, do the math on how many kids I have. And then everybody else gets like the four percent that's left over. And I spread it over everyone else I know. Right. That's not how it works. Here's how I know that's not how it works. I have more than one kid. When I had my first kid, Brayden, there was in me a new capacity to love that I had not experienced before. I didn't love my wife less because Braden was here, but I loved him so much, so much. And for like five years, he was it. And then Mason showed up and I didn't take half of my love for my wife, half of my love for Braden, and then shift it over so that Mason got a slice. That's not how that worked, right? I, it was like a supernatural thing. I multiplied my love. I had a deeper capacity for love than I ever had before. And when Mia came, again, the same thing. It was, it was like a whole new world. I don't, those of you that have a lot of kids, you know this. It's like sometimes one hits and it's like, are you even the same species? She's so different. And, and it's amazing. I love her completely differently. Really. It's like it's, she just, she's kind and compassionate. And like I have two boys that just destroy things. And she comes in and she's like, can I help, Daddy? I'm like, who are you? It's amazing. But I love her completely. I don't love them less because I love her. And I don't love God less because I love my wife and three kids. And if I had a fourth kid, I wouldn't change it. 
And when I meet you and we, be, we begin to be in a relationship, I don't have to pull from my love reserves. That's not how that works. But I still have to manage my heart and make sure that the king still sits on the throne. You know who fights with the king more than anyone? It's not even my wife. It's me. I like to sit on the throne. Right? I like how I feel when I get to demonstrate my love the way I want to do it. So I want to be on the throne. John says, listen, dear children, I love you. But keep yourself from idols. John says, eternal life is coming. The promise of heaven is there. I was hit as I, as I just walked through all this with this idea that, you know, we're all living eternally one way or the other. And John's saying, here's how you can know that you know with confidence who you are, what a believer is, who Jesus is, how a believer acts. And that your heart is aligned with God first. And that's like the, that's the whole thing. That's good news. That's exciting. We all have the opportunity to make those decisions. We can summarize John's letters this way. We love God and then we walk like Jesus. He's like, hey, you got to love God and then you got to walk like Jesus. So let me ask you this. What are you in love with right now? What are you most in love with right now? How's your love? How's your pie chart? What do you really love right now? If you were to look at your heart and your life, and you see this letter that John wrote, how would you measure your love? How deep is it? No. How would you measure your love? Where is it at? Do you really love God the way John says that we should love God? Are there other things in there, other stuff that are fighting for control of your love? Are you in a war? Are you saying you love God, but then living like you don't love God? Are you a liar? John says a liar a whole lot in here. I'm just asking. Is he talking to you? I was struggling with this idea, and then the Lord just directed me to Philippians. And Paul talking about this idea of love and God and stuff and all of the things of the world that we wrestle with that fight for our heart. And Philippians chapter 3, I'm, I'm, I'm close to wrapping us here, but, but Paul says this, chapter 3, verse 7, he says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Just think about that for a second. Whatever were gains to me, everything that in my heart filled me, I now consider loss because of what I gained when I met Christ. I don't even know if that can get into your mind and you can begin to comprehend that. Everything else, he's like, is loss compared to that. Verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus my Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, but I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He says, it's not about obedience. It's about what Christ did, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. 
Now, verse 10 is going to mess with us. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I love that. Paul says, I consider everything else I was chasing after a loss compared to how amazing it is that now I know Jesus. It's better. Jesus is better. The things you've chased after are not as good as knowing Jesus. Let me say it one more time because good preachers repeat things till it gets in you. Jesus is better. And so Paul says, and I like this part. This is the part that, that got me on board. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's amazing. I want to know the power of his resurrection. You know why? Because that's what defeated death. And that's what has power to say that when I'm done here, I'm not done. I want to know that power. That was the awesome part. See, but it doesn't stop there, so it gets a little rougher on us. He says, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Wait, what? I want to know the power of his resurrection, but when I fellowship with him, which means when I get into relationship with him, I also get to share in the pain of being in the family. When Jesus said, hey, don't worry when they reject you, when they're hard on you, when it's tough. They did that to me. You're in good company. All right? Don't worry when it costs you things that you want to put in your heart circle, right? When it costs you identity in the world because your identity is in me. When it costs you resource in the world because your resource is me. When it costs you relationship in the world because your greatest relationship is me. See, we don't talk about that all the time when we talk about Team Jesus. Yeah. He says, this is what it means. Paul says, this is what it's meant to me. And I had all those things. And then I met Jesus. And I looked at everything I had gained and I said, that's rubbish. Compared to the surpassing glory of knowing him. So I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want it in my heart and I want it in my life. And if that means a fellowship with suffering, then so be it. Because it's better. The trade-off is better. What he has for me is better. Is greater. Becoming like him in his death. Verse 11. And so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead he's saying there's a promise that comes with this relationship and it's better it's available the price has already been paid for it and somehow we minimize it and we make it a saying like an expression and it's not it's a lifestyle and a relationship it's about knowing him being in the family, trusting him, loving him, and it's worth it. I'm going to have uh, us just come forward in a moment. We're going to take communion. I heard it asked this way. If if everyone, listen, I, let me just be real. We still don't really all know each other, okay? We're, you know, we're still getting there, so there's still a few things I'll say that maybe if I knew you better, I'd be afraid to say it, but I don't know you that well, so I'm not afraid to say it right now, right? I have a little license. But I heard it said this way, and it stuck in my heart. When we do something like communion, when we approach Jesus, and we talk about an authentic relationship with Jesus, maybe sometimes the thing we just need to ask is, what is, say this, what's the 
big lie that's in our life right now that we need to deal with so that we can have an authentic relationship with Jesus? What's the big lie that nobody knows, that nobody's talking about, that you're not posting on Facebook, that you're not sharing with your friends and maybe even with your family? What's the big lie that's in there? Is it fear? Is it sin? Is it whatever it is? What's the big lie that's in there? Because knowing Christ and having a relationship with him forces a level of transparency and intimacy. The light comes in, First John chapter 1, right? And the darkness has to flee. And as we say we're going to have a, a, a relationship with him, what's the big lie that we need to deal with? Is it I don't trust? Is it I don't believe? Is it I don't behave? What is it? We're going to take communion here. And, and I'm going to have the ushers, if you guys would come, and, and, and uh, in a moment, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to have them pass out the elements. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, um, I think it's 11, my brain's all over the place, that we should examine ourselves before we do this. As a matter of fact, talking about sins that lead unto death, he says, some of you have grown weak and fallen asleep because you take this in a manner that doesn't involve uh, uh, evaluating your heart and your life, and you're just getting, you know, happy time. And you're not being true and honest. So let's not risk that. Let's be honest. And I'm not going to have like a you know, time where you come forward and yell into the mic, what, you know, whatever it is. So don't worry about that. I'm not outing anybody. I just want to be honest. I want to give you a moment to be honest. So if I were to just say, what is, what's the big lie? Because here's the things we know, right? We've talked about the things we know. So we know those are true. So in us, what's the big lie? What's the thing right now that nobody has access to? But we know God knows. And so here's what's going to happen. We're, we're gonna, I'm going to pray and we're going to pass out the elements and we're going to worship. And I'm going to give you some time to just be honest with Jesus about whatever it is you need to be honest about. John says there's some things that we can know. We can know what a follower of Christ looks like. Is our big lie we haven't lived like a follower of Christ? We can know who Jesus is. Is our big lie we're showing up in church? But we don't really know Jesus. Maybe today's the day that you go from, yeah, I said a prayer to, no, I know a person. And you invite Jesus to have a relationship with you. Is the big lie you don't have confidence that God will do what he says he'll do? John says we pray according to his will. We pray with confidence. Is the big lie, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe he'll do what he said he'll do. So I withhold because there's fear there. Is that the big lie? Is the big lie how a Christian acts? You know what a believer looks like, and you know your behavior, and you know it's not consistent. And nobody else knows that your behavior is not consistent, but you know, and Jesus knows. Is the big lie there's some idols, some things that have the first place in your heart. And Jesus is there competing, but you've, you've changed the identity of Jesus from someone who needs the first place in your life to someone who can have a piece of your life. Is the big lie you've changed the identity of Jesus. So I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. You're going to be honest. And it's safe to be honest with Jesus. It's okay. And then we're going to I'll bring us back together and we'll take that together. And we'll celebrate what we know because someone who walked with Jesus shared with us his story. Can we do that? 
So when the, I'm going to pray. The elements are going to come out. And then if you want to hold those, if you want to stand as we worship, um, however you want to do that, if you just need to talk with Jesus privately, talk with Jesus privately, you have permission to do that. But let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. You are incredible. You are better than anything that the world has to offer. And so, God, I want to have a transparent moment with you. And I know, I mean, I think about Isaiah and the presence of the throne just saying, woe to me. I'm, I'm, I'm just an unclean man. and I've got unclean hands and unclean lips. I don't even deserve to be in your presence. But, God, you made a way as an advocate for us to get into your presence. And so we do that in all humility, not with some agenda, not attempting to manipulate or cheat the identity of Christ or the identity of his children, but simply to be transparent because we have already lied and cheated. So as we do this, I just pray that we would not only connect with you in worship, but we'll hold these elements and simply be honest about the big lies that we need to deal with because of who you are and what we can know about you. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take and hold this. It's a powerful thing to become vulnerable in the presence of a Savior. To be honest and to measure our lives. To reveal our hearts. To be transparent. It's also freeing and redemptive and restorative. And it brings wholeness. And it brings healing. I don't believe that God sent his son so that we can meander our way through life defeated, just hoping on some small glimpse of hope. That's a lie. We can live redeemed because of what he did. And when we know him, we know that. So what I'd like for you to do is just hold the bread. And in just a minute we're going to pray. And for some of you, we've... I just I want to be careful how I say this, but we've missed sometimes the forest for the trees when we talk about a, a, a repeating a prayer that leads us to salvation because there's more. It's believe in your heart. And confess with your mouth that he is Lord and you'll be saved. It's not just repeat and you'll be saved. Right? When Acts chapter 2, the first sermon post-Jesus is preached, the, the crowds, the crowd to Peter, this word, it's melted us to our heart. What do we do? And he says, repent, get baptized, receive the spirit of God. And so we repent. God, search our hearts. If there's things we've been holding, lines that we've drawn, hardness. You told Ezekiel you could take a heart of stone and you can make it to a heart of flesh. I pray that we'd have a heart of flesh. If, God, our struggle has been we just haven't ever surrendered to you. We maybe have verbally surrendered a lot of us do that. We verbally surrender, but we don't surrender in our hearts. 
our heart belief hasn't changed, just our outward appearance and our language to make other people happy. We want to submit to our, in our hearts. Because we recognize this thing we know now, that you came in the flesh, and that you went to the cross with the body so that you could redeem all of our bodies here so that we could know you. So when we take communion and you say, do this as often as you do in remembrance of me, we know what we're remembering. So God, I pray for those who today their struggle is simply to believe. We've said words, but have we believed with our heart? Because if we did, the idols wouldn't be an issue. The behavior wouldn't be an issue. Yeah, we'd be battling uh, our flesh because that's the journey until you take us home. But we would be moving towards you, not running towards the edges, trying to see what we can get away with. We want to turn our hearts and run towards you. God, I repent of everything I've lifted up in my heart ahead of you. It's not words. It's a heart decision to put you first. We love you. And we thank you and we recognize the price you paid so that we could do that. In Jesus' name, you can break that and eat that. We're going to take the juice. The blood was part of the sacrifice. It's the price that was paid. It's the thing that made us white as snow. It's the thing that covers. It's the lens that changes how you see us so that we could approach the throne of God with confidence. It's how we know, like First John 2 says, that, that, that you advocate on our behalf. And so, God, we recognize that and we submit to that and we rejoice in that. And we celebrate the truth. I'm not who I was. All things are made new. Everyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Romans tells us we don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world. But we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. This happens because of the power of the blood. We can be transformed. We can be renewed. Even if we've been making it on the outside, but not on the inside, our minds and our hearts can be renewed because of what was accomplished when the blood was spilled for us. That's what we know. I love that your word says we can approach the throne with confidence. This is where our confidence comes from. So we receive that. In Jesus' name, amen. You can drink. I want to leave you today just kind of in the hands of the Spirit. So the worship team is going to kind of just play us out. We have prayer teams. You may not know this. Um, uh, they'll be up here in the front if you need to do some, some more work. But I don't know about you. Thank God for the power of his word. And that it changes us. I want to leave you with hope. There's things we know that are true. God loves us. We're in his family. We can have confidence. That's amazing. If you're hanging around and you're part of the visitor's lunch, you got a half hour. We're going to meet upstairs at 12 o'clock. So uh, make sure you check your kids out and give some relief to our kids workers so that we can do the transformation upstairs that needs to happen. Uh, we'd love for you to hang out. God bless you. Have an amazing week. 
in the Lord. Amen.